We thank and praise you, our God and Father, for your word, sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you for your servant that you have brought among us today and thank you that you have used your Holy Spirit in the first address. And we pray, our Father, you will continue to speak and to challenge to us your word of those things in our lives which need to be set in order with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, and uh, after lunch uh, we're doing um, the back half of 11 and 12, and we'll, we'll finish it off with those uh, two chunks. But here's um, Ecclesiastes 3. Um, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, blokes, I, I find uh, roundabouts really quite frustrating uh, in, in, in traffic. Uh, the, the run from our house to school has three roundabouts in it. And I take the boys to school every morning and, uh, you know, sometimes you, know, you drive toward a roundabout and you can see there's no one coming and so you're just, you know, moseying on through and it's all good. And there are other times, you know, there's someone in front of you who has no clue about how to use a roundabout. Have you come across these people? Yeah, yeah right? You, you, the idea of a roundabout is if there's no one coming, you go. Uh, if there's someone across the roundabout from you who's turning right, you can still go while they're over there, Right? But some people just sit there for ages. Oh, he's turning right, I better wait. And, and you, know, you get that idea where you, you think, I find myself saying things like, what are you waiting for? You know, uh, would you like a written invitation? <laughs> you know, you could drive a truck through that gap. Um, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, and I think, I think I'm having this inner monologue, you see, I think I'm saying these things to myself, but apparently I'm not. Uh, and I know this because some mornings uh, we'll be sitting at a roundabout behind such a person and one of the boys will yell out, Have a go, you muppet! <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of turn around and I look at him and I think, Oh. Okay. Yeah, they're only saying it because they've heard me saying it. And that's quite a confronting thing to have your ungodliness pointed out by your 12-year-old. Um, uh, it makes me ask a question though. So why am I impatient in traffic? I'm guessing I'm not alone uh, in a room full of men. Uh, we all think that we're ex excellent drivers, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yes. Now, so why can't I, in traffic, just settle down and wait calmly for a gap to open up? Why can't I do that? And before you all sort of start sitting there nodding your head going, yes, Steve, why can't you? Uh, why can't you? Because <laughs> right? we're all a bit like this, I think. And now I wonder if, if it's because even something as simple as traffic reminds us uh, that time is brief and we are so very obviously not in control of it. Right? Because if we were in control of time and in control of traffic, we would, I don't know if you've ever done this before, I've done this plenty of times, had this little daydream where I've invented this little, thing, little machine uh, whereas I'm, if I'm coming up to a set of lights I press a button on it and the lights change to red on the other way and green for my way. Have you ever had that little daydream where you wish you had that little traffic controlling device? Or is it just me that's a complete control freak? <laughs> Perhaps it's just me. Uh, but I, I like that idea. But we can't do that, right? I think traffic sometimes reminds us that we're really not in control of anything. 
Uh, And Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is brief and time is fleeting. Now it isn't meaningless as the NIV said, we looked at that in that that first talk, Um, but we know that that life is uh, very brief. It's it's a vaporous kind of mist. And one of the other big themes in Ecclesiastes is this painful truth that we are so very obviously not in control of time. Uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. And as the teacher gets into chapter 3, this is what he's on about. This is what life is like. It has seasons, uh, some of which are really enjoyable and a lot of fun, others of which are incredibly painful and filled with sadness and loss and mourning and grief and all those sort of things. And as the chapter goes on, he explains why life is like it is and then toward the end he gives us this idea, he introduces this idea to us of God as the judge. Uh, this is, I, I love this chapter in Ecclesiastes. This is a fantastic thing. Uh, I think it engages us on all sorts of emotional levels. It's a bit of a roller coaster. this chapter. So let's uh, crack into it. Chapter, uh, verse 1. And have a listen to this poem uh, that starts this chapter and hear this, this really rhythmic kind of nature of life um, in our world, a, a life that brings joy and sadness and you know, laughter and loss. So listen to this, here we go. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate. That's a surprising thing to read in the Bible, isn't it? Uh, a time for war and a time for peace. You know, this is one of the reasons I love the Bible. It is uncomfortably honest about life. You know, over the past three weekends, sorry, hang on, go back a weekend or two when, before the youth convention. So the three weekends before that, uh, I did three weddings at church. Um, so um, three of our young couples in my congregation wanted to get married and they got married uh, and it, it was you know, wonderful. Weddings are, are really exciting. I've got another five to do when I get home uh, for the rest of this year. Um, there have been about six little babies born in my congregation um, uh, to other married couples just this year and so there's been a lot of laughter and a lot of you know, joy and rejoicing with, with all these people. On the other side of that there are several marriages in our church uh, where couples are going through their worst season of their marriage. Um, some of them will probably not make it. They will probably end up separating and divorcing. Um, maybe some of them uh, will make it uh, if they get some good counselling and there's uh, good forgiveness and, and all that sort of thing. But some of them won't make it. And one of my mates at church is as we speak, undergoing radiation treatment for a brain tumour that he's had five operations on already um, and it keeps growing back. And, um, so this is, a bit of it. this is almost the last roll of the dice, so to speak, for this bloke. He's a young bloke, he's married, got a kid. Um, his wife just miscarried with their second at 17 weeks and gave birth to a stillborn baby. So this poem at the start of Ecclesiastes 3 is like looking in a mirror and seeing the reflection of life with all its sorrows and hardships and confusions 
that are also interspersed with joy and laughter and love. And this isn't just a, a touching poem that the birds turned into a you know, pretty cool folk song back in the day. This is actually what life's really like. And if, if we were in control of life, if you and I ran the show, uh, we'd take all the times of suffering and confusion out, wouldn't we? We'd just erase them. And so we'd make sure that life just had all the enjoyable bits. If, if we were writing this poem or, or this, you know, if we were writing life, it'd be very different. We'd just have times to be born, times to plant, times to heal, times to, to build and laugh and embrace and dance and, and love. But that isn't reality. And you and I know it. And if, you, if you've got a few more years under your belt, if you've done a few laps, you'll know this more than the younger blokes. You'll know what life can be like. Uh, this poem reminds us that life doesn't always follow the script that we would write. Life isn't neat and orderly. And ultimately the message of this poem is that life is often something that happens to us that you and I have very little or no control of. And the teacher understands this. And he understands that this, uh, this understanding of life is a double-edged sword. So look at what he says here. One edge of the sword, listen to this, uh, verse 10. I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So this double-edged sword, one edge of the sword is that God has set eternity in our hearts. Right? And so that means that you and I know there is a tomorrow. Uh, we know that uh, time consists of the past and the present and the future. But the other edge of the sword is that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And most of the time we don't understand what happened yesterday. Right, that's the, the, the double-edged sword. And this is the burden that he speaks of in verse 10. I, I think this is up there with the most humbling and troubling things uh, about being human, up there with the most troubling things about being human. See, our perspective on life is so limited that we can only see what's in front of us today. And, and we know, Lord willing, that tomorrow's coming. Right? If Jesus doesn't turn up or we don't fall off the perch, we know that tomorrow's coming but we don't know what's going to happen. We've no clue. And that is a really humbling thing. And I think that makes the start of verse 11 both comforting and confronting. See, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And we, you know, maybe you've read this verse before and you just kind of brush over it. But it, you start thinking about it and this really starts getting to you because the question you've got to ask is whose time? Whose time is everything beautiful in? Is it God's time or is it our time? Right Now let's just have a think about that for a second because do we really believe it? It's there in the Bible. Most of us would say, yeah, I believe the Bible. Do you really believe that God has made everything beautiful in its time? Because I reckon if we're honest with ourselves, we don't. We don't really believe that an unexpected illness is beautiful. I don't think we really believe that a car accident, a bad car accident, is a beautiful thing. I don't think that we believe that an early death is beautiful or that depression is beautiful. Right? Those things are a burden and they are a heavy burden. Right? So what's this guy saying? I think he's saying, my eyes see that this life is a fleeting mist but my heart and my soul know that God is wise and just and good. And I'm really trying hard to get my head around these things. And I think he's trying to talk to us about our perspective. Okay? So here's our perspective on life. 
from our perspective, where we sit, life is chaotic. It's confusing, it's a fleeting mist that is here one moment and then gone the next and our eyes see this. But our hearts know that from God's perspective things look different. See, from God's perspective we know that God has ordered everything so it's beautiful in its time. We can't often see beauty in our circumstances but God can. We see difficult times God sees opportunities for us to create beauty by the way we respond to each other and help each other. We see grief. God sees beauty in the way we love each other and care for each other. See, Paul says in Romans 8 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, so right now, from our perspective, we look around our churches and, and we look around this hall this morning and what, what do we see? We see a bunch of Christian blokes struggling to overcome sin. That's what we see. Because we're all pretty jacked up at some level, aren't we? Right? So that's, we all have our church face on. You know, Sunday mornings, you, you, you know, you're in the car park and you quickly whip your church face on and you come in and it's all good. But we all know that you scratch the surface a bit and we're all you know, pretty gone. Um, but we, we see this bunch of Christians struggling to overcome sin and to be honest, it doesn't look that beautiful, does it? It kind of looks a bit messy, really, if we're honest with ourselves. But at the right time, we will see beauty in each other and dare we believe it, we even will get to see beauty in ourselves. Right? That's what Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And that's an extraordinary thing to say. But then he makes it even better because later in Romans 8 he says that we know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now probably most of us believe that here. You know, because we just go, oh, it's in the Bible, there you go, it must be true, right, I believe that, yeah, sure, you know. But I tell you, when we're in the middle of suffering, it takes immense faith and courage to hang on to that verse and believe it. See, I think we often look at our circumstances and we ask, why? Why God? What were you thinking? Why did you allow that to happen? And you know, sometimes, sometimes we get an answer to those questions and it might come a little way down the track and we can look back at whatever the thing was and we can say, yeah, okay, I can see what you were doing, God. And yes, you're right, everything was beautiful in its time. But fellas, and again, particularly those of you blokes who are a bit older, you'll know this more than the young blokes, there are a bunch of things that we'll never get that answer to. There are a lot of things in life you just say, no, don't get it. If I'm honest, I can't actually see the beauty thing, God, no. I don't get it. And that's the bit where you have to trust that God knows what he's doing and that this is actually right, even if we don't understand it. See, this is the way God has set up his creation. There's his perspective and there's our perspective. And we have questions and we want to know why things are the way they are and the teacher here gives us what is among the most uncomfortable answers in the Bible. Look at verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. 
Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. And look at this. God does it so that people will fear him. Or the old NIV, as uh, was read, people will revere him. Same thing, fear, revere. God does it so that people will fear him. Our experience of life with all its fleeting, vaporous, incomprehensible, kind of out of controlness, has the God-ordered purpose of bringing us to our knees before him in reverent fear and worship. Now we often misunderstand this idea of fearing God. It's not a terrified fear. It's not a quaking in your boots, kind of scared of God thing. I think fearing God biblically is understanding the difference between us and him. Right, so God is the creator and we are the created. And that means we depend on him for everything. And in the painful circumstances of life, we are supposed to look at that and see that we are meant to be driven to God in reverent fear for everything that we cling to to get us through those times, to seek his comfort and his compassion. And I tell you, understanding that should encourage us to live really wisely and humbly before God and to be careful with the why question. See, I reckon this is one of the hardest things the Bible confronts us with, but the truth is that if God made our lives simple and easy, we would not seek him. We just wouldn't. See, you've got to, why do you think Christianity in the West is, is basically in the toilet, going out the back door, and in the developing world people are becoming Christians left, right and centre? Why do you think that is? See, because we have life so easy here, none of us are actually that convinced we need God. Whereas, you know, you hang out in the third world for a while and people have got nothing and they know it and there's people, you know, dropping left, right and centre. All they've got is God to hang on to. You know, I heard someone say once that um, someone had done a, a bunch of mission agencies had got together and, and, and figured out between all of them how many people are becoming Christians. Because I think in the, third, in the developed world, we look at our churches and they're shrinking or not going anywhere or plateaued and we kind of freak out and we think, gee, what's going on? And, and, and I think a lot of us have this idea that are we on the right, are we, if we're in a horse race, you know, are we on the right horse or do we need to get off this horse and, and back another horse? And, and we, we freak out about it a bit. But these mission agencies, really good ones, the, the solid ones, got together and they figured out, it took them a while to figure this out, but they figured out that around 53,000 people a day worldwide become Christians. Right? That's a lot of people, isn't it? Uh, nine days, that's all of Tasmania converted. Right? Except maybe a few of the Greens. This isn't being recorded. Is it? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Where was I? No, that wasn't in the script. Um, but but we, we have this idea, I think, that, that we, we wonder, is this, is this actually working? And fellas, I've got to tell you, the answer is yes. You know, last year I had the privilege of, of heading over to Tanzania with, um, with Compassion. Um, most of you will have heard of Compassion. Uh, they're just brilliant. I love those guys to bits. They're fantastic. And we were in Tanzania with them, you know, and, and hearing stories of, of young people and, and all their families who've ended up being converted. And you start to get the idea that you think, hang on a second, 53,000 is not incomprehensible. We were just in one little spot and there were people becoming Christians left, right and centre. Um, every day that Jesus doesn't turn up, 50, 50 odd thousand people have made it into God's kingdom. Uh, it's a good thing to be thankful for. Um, our first reaction, I think, to verse 14 is to deny it. 
We don't actually want to hear that God does life the way it works so that people will fear him. I think that actually offends most of us. And yet in the midst of all this harsh and somewhat depressing reality, um, verse 12 and 13, calm our fears. This is, this is what fearing God looks like day to day. Um, look at verse uh, 12. This is cool, right? I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. That is the gift of God. So you ask yourself the question, what would it look like if I feared God? It would look like that. Uh, We'd be happy. We'd be happy because we would know that ultimately God is in control of everything and we know that he cares for us more than we even care for ourselves. So that would make us happy. We'd do good to other people because God has so richly blessed us, we would want to be a blessing to everyone around us, not a curse. Uh, We'd take ourselves a lot less seriously. Really? Yeah, really. Because... When you think about it, there's a lot to laugh at. You know, do you ever think about some of the things you say and do and you think, yeah, I'm a bit of a muppet, aren't I? Really, I should not take myself too seriously. I should have a Coke and a smile. I should order a pizza, sit down, have a beer, watch the footy, as long as you're over 18. Okay? If you're not over 18, no, you can't. Because God made pizza and beer for us to enjoy. He really did. And so you should give thanks for your food and your wine and enjoy them both to the glory of God. That's what verse 12 and 13 say. It's in the Bible, I'm not making it up. God says, do it, do it, enjoy it. In fact, we'd actually enjoy whatever we were doing, whether it's work or study or rest or kicking a ball around a park or building a house or whatever, and we'd be satisfied in it because we'd know, hey, this is the day that the Lord has made and God tells me to rejoice and be glad in it. That's a psalm, it's there, it's in the Bible. That's what fearing God actually looks like, verse 12 and 13 of Ecclesiastes 3. And that's a really surprising picture, isn't it? Because if we're fair thinking with ourselves, we know that Christianity has a bit of a reputation. We Christians have a bit of a reputation of being kind of the right wing of God's fun police, don't we? Right? It's true. And here's God telling us to take things a bit easier and not get quite so wound up about stuff. And you think, really? That's in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible. Kind of, when you read this, it kind of makes you glad that you're a Christian again. You're like, oh, really? Yeah, God does say that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? This is freedom. And there really isn't anything like this in any other religion. There's nothing like this. There's no real freedom outside of Christ. But here's the thing. Now, just in case you're all sitting there thinking, geez, talking about enjoying beer an awful lot. Just in case you're thinking that verse 12 and 13 are telling us that we can kind of do what we like, you know, a bit of a like a free pass, a get-out-of-jail-free card, do what you like and overindulge in food and drink, just in case we think that, and I'm not saying that, so please don't think I'm saying that, this teacher introduces us to another idea that most of us are uncomfortable with. And so from verse 15 he starts talking about the sobering idea of a coming judgement. And, and judgement does, I think, at least three things. Uh, it helps us keep a check on our behaviour, so while there's this freedom to enjoy the stuff that God's given us, We've got to hear this judgment thing coming and and, and keep a bit of a lid on things and not get out of control. It also assures us that one day all the injustices of life will be put right and it reminds us that one day everyone will face God and those are three really good things to kind of have in the back of your mind. Have a look at verse 15. He says, Whatever is has already been and what has been, uh, sorry, and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. 
In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, hmm, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So this little chunk of scripture kind of uh, sounds a bit like we've been led into a courtroom. And the thought comes to this teacher at the end of verse 15 that, that God will call the past to account. And verse 16, the magistrate's on the bench and we're in the courtroom and this is perhaps the one place that we should expect to find justice on the earth in a courtroom. But instead, look at what he says, in the place of judgment there's wickedness. In the place of justice there's wickedness. And by verse 17 he realises that while on earth injustice thrives, there is a time coming when the righteous and the wicked will stand before God and they will all face God and all the wrongs will be put right. I've talked to atheists about this sort of stuff you know, for jolly years and heaps of times asked them about how atheism deals with injustice and they've got no answer. They really don't. See, without God there is no possibility for the wicked to be punished and the righteous to be rewarded. Atheism has no answer for injustice. And so when you're in conversations with some of your mates or some people that you talk with who are atheists, talk about injustice. Right, because I think God has given us this, this conscience thing that says injustice is wrong and we, want, we don't like injustice. Right, we, we like justice. So talk about that with your, with your atheist mates when those conversations come up. I love justice. Right? I was a copper for about five years. I love it when crooks go to jail and if push came to shove for the worst offenders, I've actually got no problem with the death penalty. Right? I hate it when when really bad crooks escape justice and get away with their crimes. I just cannot stand it. It was one of the most frustrating things about being a policeman. Right? Uh, some crooks just get away with things constantly and it's, oh man, it just kind of makes you really wild. Uh, and it's, it's, it's why uh, ex-coppers aren't allowed to be on juries. I don't know if you blokes know this, but ex-policemen are not allowed to sit on a jury in a court case. Right? And the reason for this is because <laughs> everyone knows that if a copper's on a jury... Right, the copper's just going to go, well, he may not have done this, but he did 15 other things he got away with, so let's just call it even and give him eight years. Right? And, and so that's... <laughs> is that right, John? Yes. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. He might disagree with me, but oh, that's what I'd do. Eight, give him ten, blow it. Right, make it even. Um, I remember arresting a bloke um, with a stolen Holden Statesman in his backyard and uh, he was stripping this thing and, and selling it. He was... This is Mount Druitt, so it's you know, pretty blase. He, he, I think he even put an ad in the Trading Post. Um, but he was, he, when I arrested him, uh, he was walking across the road with the bull bar and the muffler, uh, like this, across the road and selling it to his mate, right? And I drove around the corner and saw him. I thought, you little beauty, because I knew the kid. Oh, you little ripper, there's no way that's his. Come here, you're under arrest. Right, fantastic. Took him back to the police station, asked him a heap of questions, charged him with uh, receiving, which is quite a serious offence. It wasn't just goods in custody, it's receiving. And uh, it was just great because he was a car thief, he was a drug dealer and we all knew him and I, yeah, this, is, this is good, he's going to get at least two years for this. This is exactly what the little bloke deserves. And, um, <laughs> and then we got to court and I went to the district court in Parramatta and I'm watching this thing unfold before me and the magistrate or the judge of the district court just technicality, bang, gone, released, case dismissed on this bizarre little technicality that I'd missed. And uh, you know, I walked out of the courtroom and I looked at this bloke 
And he's looking at me with this big grin on his face that only a baseball bat could fix. And, <laughs> and, uh, and like, the, like the teacher here, I saw something else under the sun. That there in the place of judgement, there's wickedness. And there in the place where you would expect to find justice, there's evil. You know, I thought, how did this little, how did this criminal get away with his crime? You know, where is the justice in that? And like the teacher, I, you know, I think verse 17 is an absolute cracker. You know, I'm like, mate, you might have got away with it this time, you little mongrel, but God is going to be your judge one day. You know, He will bring the righteous and the wicked to judgment. There will be a time for every activity and every deed to be judged. And again, here's the teacher confronting us with what we experience of life. Right? This is real. We know life's not fair. Right? We all get this. We all see it every other day. It's fleeting. Life is difficult to make sense of. And if you're not depressed just yet, you will be in a second because back in chapter 2 when he starts talking about death uh, of the righteous and the wicked you know, and he says there's no difference between the righteous and the wicked. Here in chapter 3 he's going to actually say there's no difference between us and animals. <laughs> which is just fantastic. Um, he wonders, you see, look at this. In, um, he says, you know, dogs and cats die and so do people, so are we any better off than a Rottweiler? Look at verse 18. He says, I said to myself, as for humans, look, God tests them so that they can see they're like the animals. Uh, surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does the other. They both have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over the animals, I think to myself. Everything's meaningless, everything's fleeting, vaporous, hard to grasp. All go to the same place, all come from dust, all to dust return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And so I saw there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that's their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So you remember Ecclesiastes is written a long time before Jesus turns up. And so the idea of resurrection is only hinted at in the Old Testament by this stage. And so the teacher, he knows that eternity is there. Right? He said that to us in verse 11, but he's not sure what happens. He's not sure who goes where. And so his question is understandable. Who knows if there's another life? Who knows who goes up or who goes down? Or do animals go to heaven you know, or do they become fertiliser? And he doesn't have an answer. And so he comes back to this idea, this familiar idea that there's actually nothing better for us than to enjoy our work because this is our lot. Now, uh, I think that uh, where the NIV says there, this is our lot, I think that's a bit of a negative understanding perhaps of the Hebrew word. I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but my understanding of this is that something perhaps a little bit like reward would be a better understanding of it. Um, Those of you who may be Hebrew scholars can correct me afterwards, but I think this is our reward is probably a better idea that working and enjoying our work is our reward from God, not just our kind of fatalistic lot, if you understand what I mean. So let's have just a quick recap of Ecclesiastes 3 before I wrap it up, right? Life is a series of events and seasons that are outside of our control. God has set eternity in our hearts so that we know that there is more to life than meets the eye. It's just that we lack the resources to comprehend what's going on. And while everything about our life is fleeting and a vaporous mist, everything that God does endures forever. God has set creation up in just this way so that we will see the difference between us and him. 
which should lead us to the conclusion that the only sensible thing to do is to worship and fear him. There's much wickedness and injustice in the world but the day is coming when God will call the past to account and there is a time for every deed and every activity to be assessed and judged by God. That's Ecclesiastes 3. Now, what do we make of it? What's it saying to us? Uh, We've already seen the idea of joy and fun in life and we we see that in uh, the back end of chapter 2, verse 12 here, verse 13, verse 22 here. I think that the teacher wants us to see something else in this chapter. So he makes the point often that there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and he says that you know, what's happening now has happened before, only the names and the faces have changed. And if he was here now, he'd say, yep, life's all still seasons and cycles, nothing's changed. There's a time for this, there's a time for that. I think uh, that perhaps one of the big challenges for us in this chapter is to realise that our sense of timing is often really bad. See, there are times to laugh and there are times to cry, but we don't always get it right. There are times to kill and there are times to heal, but we aren't always sure which is the right option. There are times to be silent and there are times to speak. I very rarely get that one right. I think this is part of the burden the teacher talks about in verse 10, this burden God's laid on us. Because we can only see life from our perspective, we don't often know how to respond appropriately. So God has made everything beautiful in its time, but we don't get to see things from God's point of view. And so we not only miss the beauty of the event, we often fail to make the right response to it. And this was a problem in Jesus' day. You know, in Matthew 11, Jesus is talking to people about John the Baptist and he picks up on this idea of poor timing. Right? So in verse 16 he says, To whom shall I appear, to what shall I compare this generation? Uh, he says, you guys are like children sitting in a marketplace and you're calling out to others, hey, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance and then we sang a funeral dirge for you and you didn't mourn. And what Jesus is saying to all the people in his day is your sense of timing is off. You heard the flute and the flute's a pretty, you know, it makes you want to dance a jig because it's a happy kind of boppy little thing and you know, so we should have danced and you didn't dance. And so then we played something in a minor key. It was a, a dreary kind of, oh, it's a funeral thing and you didn't get all mournful and sad. Your, your sense of timing, Jesus is saying, is awful. And then he goes on and he says in verse 18, he says, John the Baptist, you know, you blokes remember John the Baptist, right? Yeah, we killed him, that's right. He's the dude's head we chopped off. Okay, he came, he turned up, he wasn't eating or drinking and yet you guys all said, oh, he's demon-possessed. And then he says, I turn up and I'm eating and drinking and hanging out with all these sinners and you blokes tell me that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Your sense of timing is awful. See, Jesus turned up here with so much to do Uh, His mission was to seek and save the lost and he managed to get it all done by the time he was 33, which is not a bad effort really, is it? Uh, But he took the time to eat and drink and befriend tax collectors and publicans and sinners and outcasts. He took the time to befriend you and me. And Jesus concludes that little interaction with the Pharisees and, and all those people. And he says something that's quite mysterious. He says, yet wisdom is proved right by her actions. And Jesus is saying that he is proved 
to be wise because his sense of timing was perfect. Everything he did, everything he said was exactly what was needed at that particular time, that particular season, that particular event. So meeting sinners like you and me, eating and drinking with them, making them his friends, everything Jesus did was beautiful in its time. So God's sense of timing is perfect. So think of it like this. If we stood on a hill outside of Jerusalem a couple of thousand years ago, we would have seen a man hanging on a cross. We would have seen nails driven through his hands and his feet, uh, nailed, you know, hammered into the cross. We would have seen a, his body covered in blood. We would have seen his, his back just ripped open. Blood everywhere. His body beaten, bruised, crown of thorns on his head. We'd have seen his tears. We'd have heard his anguish. We would have seen his mum doubled over in grief, completely unable to stand up under the weight of what's going on in her heart. The one thing none of us would have seen was beauty. Right? Now, turn it around and look at it from God's perspective. See, because from God's perspective, the scene is utterly different. God looks, sees the same thing, sees the same man, sees the same nails, sees the same opened up back, the same crown of thorns, the same amount of blood. He sees the same woman on the ground under the weight of her grief and from God's perspective the scene is utterly different. He sees beauty. He sees that the cross is beautiful in its time. Because this is the day that God had waited for and planned for since before the beginning of time. This is the day, from God's point of view, that signals the end of Satan, sin and death. We see horror, God sees salvation. We see the worst day in all of history. God sees a promise kept. Because from that moment on, People everywhere and anywhere can come to him in repentance and faith and get new life precisely because Jesus has been crucified on that hill outside of Jerusalem. God's perspective enables him to look at that and see beauty. And because we're Christians, if you're a Christian, you can now look at that and see it's Good Friday. It's not Terrible Friday or Really, Really Bad Friday. It's flippin' Awesome Friday because it's beautiful in its time. I think maybe the reason we fail to see beauty in so many things is because our timing is wrong. And it's not that, it's not that a serious car accident is a beautiful thing. You know the other weekend when, when Jesse's car flipped over, the ute flipped over and it's in the ditch on the side of the road there. I didn't, when we all stopped and we're all talking with each other and I didn't see people saying, gosh that's beautiful, good work Jesse. You know, I didn't see that. I saw people crying and people hugging each other and praying. But, but think of it from another perspective. Think of a whole heap of people at a youth convention who on the way home almost saw five of their mates die. Think of the impact that what was said at that convention will now make on those young guys. Right? Think of God saying, this is really serious because your life can be taken like that. 
And think of God saying, those five guys, no, it's not your time yet. But don't take this life for granted. Right? Perspective. It, to our eyes, it was horrific. It was, it was, um, it just, it was, it was a gut-wrenching thing to pull up on the side of the road and there's the SES bloke telling us there's been a bad car accident around the corner and think far out, it's probably one of our, our guys. It's, it was horrible. But the perspective changes when you see that actually nothing bad happened and wow, everything is beautiful in its time. Sometimes we don't get that perspective. And yet God says to us, the death of Jesus is beautiful in its time. That's an extraordinary thing. There is much that we will not understand this side of heaven. Like I said earlier, there's a bunch of things that we won't get an answer for. But you know, in places like 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about the day when we get there, we'll know stuff. We will get answers. And I think... Last night someone said to me, someone asked me the question, you know, what's the, if you could sum up in one word, what's the best thing about being a Christian? I said hope. And I think hope kind of encapsulates not just our hope of heaven but the, the hope that one day all the questions we have will be answered. And, and when we sit here and say, why God? And sometimes we get no answer. There we will. And that's a pretty great thing. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And God is so amazing that he makes everything beautiful in its time. How about we pray and then have some lunch. Father God, there are a lot of things that um, we won't get answers for here. Father, as I look around this room, I know that there are some of my brothers here Uh, who are searching for answers for a whole heap of things Uh, and the reality is they probably won't find those answers until we meet you. Father, for those of us in that sort of a situation, my prayer is for patience and trust and Lord, I ask that you would change our perspective a little so that we might start to see things from your perspective. And even when we can't understand it, please, Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see that things are beautiful in your time and the trust to continue on walking with you through life, knowing that one day we will get an answer. Father, thank you so much for Ecclesiastes and for its message to us in the middle of our busyness and hysteria of life. uh, We have time to slow down and to hear what you've got to say and sometimes, Lord, to have a bit of a reassessment of where our lives are going. Uh, Lord, please help us to wrestle with you over this, not to just reject things out of hand but to examine the scriptures and to search ourselves as well. Father, we thank you for this book and we uh, continue to ask that you would keep teaching us and keep being patient with us through it. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.